Hello and welcome to my podcast for module EAS 3042. This research project explores the topic of history and reconciliation within contemporary South Korean society through the lens of gender inequality within the nation. In particular, this project focuses on the issue of sexual violence in 20th and 21st century Korea and will draw attention to the ways in which national history and official discourse contribute to upholding systems of oppression in South Korean society today. This research will do so through the analysis of two notable feminist issues, the wartime comfort women issue and the 2018 Me Too movement. Finally, this podcast will determine that these female-centred narratives must be included and taught as a part of the nation's official history, and that doing so would be a crucial step towards attaining social justice and gender equality in contemporary South Korea. So without further ado, let's get into the content. Gender violence in Korea is widely regarded as a cause for concern and is particularly prevalent within the home. A 2016 survey on domestic violence shows that women are more likely to be the victim of such a situation and that crimes of a sexual nature are on the rise. Today, South Korean women are facing an increase in abuse in the form of revenge porn, virtual harassment and spy cameras. Although these forms of violence make use of modern day technology, The sexist attitudes and actions that drive them are not a new phenomenon. Korea, in the words of feminist law scholar Hyun Yeo Yang, has a long history of subjugation and violence against women. In order to understand Korea's problem with gender discrimination and violence, it is important to understand the social, political and cultural context of the past and present. Korea is a notoriously patriarchal society, fueled by traditional Confucian ideology and values that preach women's subordination to men. This value system lingers today, but in the 20th century, it was systemically enforced and abided by. Women maintained the home, served their families, and were taught the ideological importance of chastity and virginity. Sexual promiscuity was socially tolerated for men, as it was regarded as part of their nature, but not for women. Rape and abuse, particularly within the home, were situations worsened by the Confucian ideology of keeping private problems private, or suffered in silence. This, to some extent, explains the prolonged silence of female victims of sexual violence in Korea, both in the past and today. In 1910, women's situations worsened in Korea when Japan colonised the nation. What followed were decades of violent domination and oppression of the Korean people, and women, particularly those of a lower class, were the oppressed of the oppressed. Rape, assault and femicide were common occurrences throughout this period leaving many women traumatised and without any systems of support. Scholars stress the necessity of understanding the intersection of class and gender when discussing gender discrimination in Korea. Low-class women were considered to be the lowest group on the traditional Korean social hierarchy and were thus vulnerable to greater levels of mistreatment and abuse than their higher-ranking counterparts. It was within this atmosphere of cultural sexism and aggressive colonisation that Korean women were targeted and forced into sexual slavery for Japanese soldiers. These women would be known euphemistically as comfort women, or chongshinde in Korean, and were made to work in Japanese military brothels known as comfort stations before and during the Second World War. From 1932 to 1945, the Japanese army stole an estimated 200,000 young girls from most of their colonies, of which 80% are thought to be Korean. These girls were typically aged between 14 and 18, and many of them were from lower-class families, desperate for the money and thus more vulnerable to the deceptive recruitment tactics of military officers. Lured in with the promises of jobs at factories and on farms, 
These women were then incarcerated in these brothels across Southeast Asia and subjected to rape, abuse, torture and murder by Japanese soldiers. Those who weren't killed or died from disease or malnutrition were returned to Korea at the end of the war, where they suffered from the physical and psychological trauma of their experiences in silence due to shame and fear of social rejection. This silence would not be broken until the 1990s. In the meantime, socio-political conditions for women in Korea were thrown into turmoil by the division of the nation and a push for a rapid post-war industrialization under an authoritarian government. The violence present within Korea up to and beyond the nation's democratization in the late 1980s has been emphasized by scholars and historical records. This in turn contributed to gender-based oppression and violence throughout the period. The military dictatorship and subsequent Park Chung-hee regime not only facilitated poor working conditions for women, but also encouraged the development of the sex industry in order to entice international trade and service the American troops. As a result, women's movements began to organise in the 1970s, but these efforts were quickly oppressed by the militant government and the national agenda of industrialization. The sex industry went underground with the establishment of a democratic government in late 1987, but it was no less prolific, and sex workers still faced incredible social stigmatization. Nationalism and gender oppression were intimately related within South Korea's sex industry in the 1970s, with women called to prostitute themselves to soldiers for the sake of the nation. Women's groups in the 1980s and 90s sought to educate the public about feminist issues, among them sex crimes, but with limited success. Public shame stopped women from coming forward, and national efforts to facilitate the democratic transition enforced an official discourse that was not ready to face the historic legacy of colonialism, militarism and sexism. These early women's rights movements were founded by low-class and working-class women and also thus had limited social influence. But these movements would grow in size and number over the following two decades and would play a key role in the uncovering of the Comfort Women operation. Finally, in 1991, the Comfort Women's Decades of Silence was broken with the testimony of Kim Hakusen, Class action lawsuits and weekly protests in Seoul ensued, with the Korean populace, led by women's movements, lobbying for an admission of guilt, an official apology, and individual victim compensation by the Japanese government for this human rights violation. This quickly became a contentious issue between South Korea and Japan, with the latter finally admitting government involvement in 1992, but stating an apology and compensation had already been settled with the 1965 treaty. As more women stepped forward to share their stories, more scrutiny was placed upon both governments' involvement in this military operation. Japan's motivations for keeping this aspect of their war crimes under wraps are vast and well understood. But what of the Korean government, and why suddenly advocate for these women now? After all, they kept it quiet for many decades, and not from a lack of knowledge. Documents pertaining to the calculated recruitment of these young women, women were numerous and easily accessible to Koreans. Indeed, in one elementary school, such documents were on public display for many years. The previously mentioned ideological belief that women were inferior to men definitely played a role. More so, the political and economic benefits derived from the post-war sex industry that these comfort women were trapped in explains the Korean government's non-issue with this past injustice. Nationalism also plays a significant role in the sudden domestic advocacy of comfort women. Many scholars note the government's newfound support for their cause as an attempt to enforce a national identity of shared suffering during Japanese colonial rule. An editorial document written in 1992 described the comfort women issue as a matter of national pride. As Yang San, 
as Yang states in her 1998 article, Nationalist discourses frame the issue of military comfort women in ways that redeploy patriarchal norms of female sexuality. The nationalist discourse and victims' testimony surrounding the comfort women issue differ massively, further showing the ways in which national memories and discourses are manipulated, exclusionary, and oftentimes damaging to the very people whose legacies they ought to, they ought to protect. The comfort women elucidated a national denial of their shared past like nothing else. The cultural, political and classist attitudes of their society directly attributed to the horrors that the Korean comfort women faced and also cemented systems of silence under which these women suffered for half a century. These systems are just as prevalent and damaging today. Although the situation for women in Korea is getting better, gender equality is far from being attained. Still regarded as a conservative patriarchal society, South Korea is one of the lowest performing nations for gender equality among the 41 OECD countries. Studies show that South Korean women only earn 63% of men's salaries, one of the worst pay gaps among 29 developed nations. Furthermore, according to Forbes, there are few women in key positions of power in the workplace. And as discussed at the beginning of this video, sexual harassment and violence is still a big problem facing Korean women today. With such statistics present and acknowledged within the developed nation, you'd expect widespread feminist movements to be incurring. However, this is not exactly the case. The women's movements, scholars and activists that help the comfort women find their voices are still very much active today. However, the concept of feminism is highly stigmatised in the nation due to the controversial activities of radical groups and, as some feminist scholars note, perhaps the long-lasting notion that it is a movement for lower-class women and not something the modern middle-class working woman needs. National histories and the culture they imbibe are also playing an important role here. National discourse in South Korea today continues to prioritise their past victimisation by Japan, as evidenced by their recent boycotts of Japanese products and the ongoing comfort women legal battle. This, dis this discourse, as it was two decades ago, remains intertwined with the perception and treatment of Korean women. Thus, feminist movements in the nation quickly gain vicious attention from the critics, most notable of them are men's rights groups. This anti-feminist sentiment is once again the symptom and the cause of a cultural narrative that perpetuates a political system that decenters women. In recent years, the tide is slowly but surely changing. The rise of feminism in Korea over the past few decades is notably interlinked with the comfort women issue as discussed earlier. And they continue to influence one another, connected not only through political systems, but through current attitudes and official discourses that surround women's rights. In 2015, the South Korean and Japanese governments agreed to lay all matters surrounding the comfort women issue irreversibly to rest in a controversial deal. Tokyo cemented this with the donation of 1 billion yen, which equates to roughly $9.3 million, to a comfort women victim fund. The few remaining survivors refuted this deal, as they were not consulted nor asked to participate in the legal negotiation. This inspired a surge of feminist sentiment in the nation, with protesters of all generations taking to the streets outside the Japanese embassy in Seoul in a show of support, sympathy and solidarity for these women. Not two months later, a 23-year-old girl was stabbed and killed, leaving the bathroom near Gangnam subway station 10. Upon questioning, the 30-year-old perpetrator cited past mistreatment by women as a reason for the murder. These two incidents show growing tensions within the nation regarding the prevalence of sexist attitudes and overt discrimination. Following the murder, conversations focusing on misogyny were held at the vigil. Societal prejudice against women was thus thrust into the limelight by the media, the courts, and increasing numbers of concerned individuals. 
This no doubt facilitated much more awareness of such issues and increased women's confidence to speak up in the consequent 2018 Me Too campaign. What began in 2017 as a Hollywood scandal quickly became a national and then international movement to express sympathy and empowerment for victims of sexual harassment. Although not exclusive to women, the overwhelming number of victims were female and the phrase Me Too quickly became a media sensation. The movement struck a huge chord in South Korean society following the testimony of public prosecutor So Chi-hyun on a television interview in January 2018 in which she accused a former South Korean Ministry of Justice official of sexual assault back in 2010. She also disclosed that her allegations were dismissed by her male seniors, exposing the complicity of society and the unyielding patriarchal hierarchy of the modern workplace. Holding an elite position in society, her public testimony inspired others to come forward with their stories, igniting the Me Too movement in South Korea. Many of the accused were highly regarded by society, from prominent art directors to academics to politicians, once again highlighting the systemic attitudes rooted deeply in contemporary Korean society. Whilst many were fired or resigned from their positions, some were acquitted of the accusations, which spurred further outrage and calls for social justice. The backlash this movement received in Korea was vast. Many men, feeling marginalised by the female-centred discourse of Me Too, enacted an unofficial arrangement in the workplace called the Pence Rule, referencing a statement made by US Vice President Mike Pence to never eat alone with a woman other than your wife and to avoid events featuring alcohol unless accompanied by your wife. These actions were taken to lessen the chance of being accused of sexual harassment by their female co-workers. But this conservative view had repercussions for many women in the workplace who began to be increasingly left out of company dinners and felt shunned by their male colleagues. This negative and dramatic reaction to a female central movement is very telling of the social political atmosphere in modern day Korea, in that women are still constrained by traditional gender roles and that their concerns are either silenced or weaponized to their own detriment. Rather ironically, all this backlash truly did was confirm the existence of the deeply unjust patriarchal institutions at play in modern South Korea. The future of Korean feminism is unclear, but many young activists are hopeful. But time is running out for the remaining survivors of the Comfort Woman Operation. In 2021, justice for these women has not yet been served and only four survive. Whilst it is clear that the movement faces a plethora of challenges, the government is making efforts to improve gender inequality in employment, health, education and violent crime, a 2018 UN report concluded. And Korean women are increasingly having conversations among themselves and establishing networks of support and advocacy. To conclude, this podcast critically studied the impact of an exclusionary national history upon the contemporary socio-political landscape of a nation. National histories are complex things. They are products of their cultures and societies, which are reconciling with political and economic agendas of their time. But they are not only susceptible to their context, but also exert massive influence over it. Through the context of two notable South Korean feminist movements during the past century, we can see how an altered national narrative can contribute to social injustices today. Specifically, that the national concealment of the suffering endured by wartime sex slaves ensured the perpetuation of patriarchal attitudes and behaviour, through which gender violence thrives to this day. Going forward, South Korea needs to accept responsibility for certain as- aspects of their troubled past and reconcile with the wounds it has left on their society. This is by no means an easy feat, and it will take considerable strength to go against the tide of tradition. Nonetheless, these paths need to be acknowledged and accepted, so that regardless of gender, 
both the individual and the nation can attain a future founded on the justice and peace they deserve. Thank you for listening.